Welcome to the 12th House Podcast. I'm Michelle. And I am Wallace. Yay! Wallace is here. (laughs) I just like to pop in and out (laughs) at my own leisure. And we are so happy to be in your ears today. Welcome to our digital world. Welcome to the sound waves. Is that weird to say? The vortex that is the 12th House. (laughs) You're in it now. Take you on a ride. <laughs> You're coming with us. I am so excited for today's episode because I got to talk to Alua Arthur, who is my death doula teacher and just a general badass human being. I met Alua a couple of years ago. Actually, when I first met Ethan, he had just started his podcast, Love Extremist Radio. And I was like, wow, podcast. You must be a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> no, little do I know. <laughs> Anyone can do it. Anyone can make a podcast. <laughs> but really, his podcast is great. Go listen to it. It is really good. Subtle plug. And he was talking a lot about love. And I was like, love is boring the way you're talking about it. You should talk about death. This is very you and Ethan. I know. Ethan's like sunshine. Extremely on the nose. <laughs> also, I just would like to add a little plug that your episode with him is one of our top five mm. episodes. It's really sweet. We'll link it in the show notes. He's the best person. All about love. I love him. And death. And death. Yeah, we talked a lot about death. And again, it's very pretty on brand. I was like, you should have a death duel on the podcast. That'd be so cool because, you know, grief is just love with nowhere to go. And he was like, whoa, you're right. And so he connected with Alua and then I got to meet her in person. Remember when we could meet people in person? That was cool. And then that, I didn't even know really what a death doula did until I just like knew the term a couple of years ago. And then getting to know Alua better really inspired me to go and study death doula ship, I guess. So I'm really happy to have this like full circle moment and get, just get to talk to her. She's so fun. And are you finished your training now? Absolutely not. No, I'm going like <laughs> the slowest I could possibly go with it. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that you have to do, mm. obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the you things is... You have to have is, a near-death experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have to actually, you know, come back from the dead. No, you have to work at a place... Hospice? For, yeah, at a hospice center. Mm. And it's just hard during COVID. It's been hard during COVID to be able to go volunteer at places like that because... Mm. A lot of people who are in hospice are immunocompromised and it's just, you know, funky. But so, so. many people need your services. <laughs> Morbid. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. I, well, we talk about it in this episode with Alua, but, you know, death doula work is far ranging. And mm-hmm. I think that a, mm-hmm. a lot of the time the work that we do is not just for the dying person or the person transitioning, but it's also like for their families. And for the people around them. And I think sometimes that's, I mean, like, that's what death rites and rituals really, in my opinion, like who they're for. They're not really for the person who's dead. They're for the people who are carrying that memory on. Absolutely. And I love that you guys also dive into the idea that grief isn't only associated with death. Death can come in many forms. Mm -hmm. Grieving an old relationship that has died. Mm -hmm. Grieving a part of you. Grieving a partnership, business, whatever. Yeah, I I, this is a story for another day, but I sometimes wonder if people are less afraid of death and they're more afraid of grief. Yeah. And like the intensity that comes with grief, because we we do so much to push grief away. Like you said, it, it shows up so often. Like we can mm-hmm. grieve an old version of ourselves, a relationship, a job, a, a life that we thought we were going to have. And obviously a person when they when they move on. But 
it's so intense and like we don't talk about it and we don't and grief is just not logical it's not linear Mm -hmm. and so it feels like can just like sock you in the face out of nowhere where you're like (laughs) I'm seeing the second Avengers movie why am I crying like this is so weird (laughs) with that let's get into it Alua hi welcome to the podcast it's so good to see you thank you it's great to see you too I'm excited (laughs) to be here we were just talking about your busy, busy life and busy week. And I am really curious, are you, sounds like you're an extrovert. Do you consider yourself an extrovert or an introvert? I am an extroverted introvert. <laughs> okay. What does that mean to you? I enjoy humans, but I'm happiest alone. Mm. I'm more, I'm most fulfilled alone. Mm. I really like to go inside. I can be out there, but after a while I hit a limit, I run out of words. I need to be in a quiet room staring at pretty things or out the window looking at the sky for a long period of time. Have you always known that about yourself or is that a recent discovery or a relatively recent discovery? I've known it about myself. I think people believe I'm an extrovert because I can get along with humans and I thoroughly enjoy them. I'm so curious and nosy and I love like the human experience, but I grew up in a house with three sisters and we're all very close in age, which meant that the house was always so loud and busy. The TV was on, my mom was on the phone, my dad was talking to us or playing games, sisters were chatting and I would need to go into my room and shut the door, sometimes go into the closet just to get some quiet, like relish my quiet space. Leave me alone. I just need to recalibrate my energy. Nobody talked to me. Do you consider yourself as like a intuitively and empathically very sensitive person? Does that go, do you think that contributes to that, that nature of like needing to almost like re-regulate yourself alone? Absolutely. I'm a highly sensitive person. Sometimes grocery stores overwhelm me. And then you walk in, there's the lights, there's all the color, there's music, there's other people, there's the shopping carts and the noises that they make. There are so many options. I, I despise the grocery store. I have to be really short up in order to go grocery shopping. <laughs> I have to be honest with you. It's a lot. I have to, have to be energetically resourced to, to bear whole foods. Honestly. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. Real. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in a place like LA or New York. Very, very, very sensitive. Very sensitive. Were you always super sensitive in that way? Could you pick on up on other people's emotions and feelings? And were you conscious of that? Or was it something that you contributed to? You were just like, oh, I'm, I'm super sensitive. And I have maybe like, not volatile emotions, but, but big feelings. I've always had them. I remember one of the first times I was acutely aware of it, though. I was 12 and my dad took me to what I now know as a farm. He was traveling a lot when we were growing up. And like I said, there were four of us. And so getting someone on one time with him was really special. So really early one morning, he takes me out. We go to this farm, He wanted some fresh chicken meat. And we were a meat eating household. So we go to the farm and I heard animals. I heard like a goat bleating over there in the distance. And then I heard what sounded like it turned from just like communication to panic and Mm. fear and this thing I knew was terrified and I my entire body was just in like a holding pattern you know I was just like not breathing and trying to understand why this thing was so afraid and then I heard the gun go off and the bleeding stopped and I was Mm. like 
oh my God, like that's why it was so scared and he was about to die. And I cried terribly. I cried and cried and cried and cried and stopped eating meat because I was really, I understood like the experience that the animals having right beforehand, that animal. And I thought I can't put that in my body or it in my body. And it had emotions and always been since I was 12. And I was very clear that that's what the animal was feeling. And nobody could tell me otherwise. My dad tried to calm me down. It's just what we do. And how else do we get meat? And, you know, you're African. Come on, this is what we do. I was like, that's not what I do. That's what y'all do. I'm going to unsubscribe from that. Thanks so much. Unsubscribe. Unfollow. Mute. Block. Report. (laughs) We're done. (laughs) I can only imagine how sensitive you must have been as a kid with that story. It sounds like it was really, it's a good example of like how you, your worldview has been shaped. How did you learn to exist in the world? Because the work that you do is so emotional, the most, you know, it's the, it's the, the, the it feels like the, the highest highs and the lowest lows, the, the, the depths of the human experience and the expanse of the human experience. How did you deal like, cause sometimes as a sensitive person, it's like, how do you even leave the house sometimes? <laughs> do you know? Yeah. I just told you I don't go to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> so step number one, don't leave the house. <laughs> no, I don't leave the house. No. I try to live near trees. Mm-hmm. The trees really ground me. I feel really safe there. One of the sounds I love most is the sound of the wind through the leaves. Mm-hmm. I try to live near the trees. I exercise quite a bit, like grounding the body, burn off a lot of energy burn off a lot of the things that I'm picking up elsewhere. Mm. I spend a lot of time by myself. I spend time with people that ground me. Mm -hmm. Mm, It can be overwhelming. It can be, and I live in a big city, you know, I live in Los Angeles and it's a lot, but if I have a quiet space with pretty things to look at and quiet, I'm solid. I'm okay. One of the things that I love most about the work is that it does allow me to have, to be like the fullest breath of myself to feel the highs and the lows. Mm -hmm. And I'm most comfortable when there is that range of emotion. I'm really comfortable in emotional depth. That's what makes it a really good fit. But for years when I was doing work that did not align with my spirit or with the totality of who I am, I got really depressed. Mm -hmm. I was sick. I was not functioning very well in society. So I struggled a lot, struggled. But we're back on track now, I think for the most part. Yeah, you strike me as such a joyful person. I I have a hard time picturing you depressed, but I can imagine if you didn't feel like you were able to be the fullest range of like what you're here to be and do, like yeah, that's that's like the literal example of depression, right? It's it's hiding what I think what you are or sort of like glossing over what you are. What did you do before you got into death work? I was a lawyer. I practiced at legal aid, however, So I started my legal practice at the HIV and AIDS Legal Project in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. the summer after my first year. And I worked with people who had AIDS who needed support in their housing. But with my clients, I did like anything they needed, you know, because they were in so much pain and needed so much support and they were so isolated in society and it just broke my heart. And I had a supervisor pull me aside and say, you are never going to last if you keep doing this. Like you just have to stick with the work that's directly in front of you. And I thought, oh, golly, okay, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best. Just focus on what they've come to me for. And after that, eventually I graduated and started working at Legal Aid. I did 
government benefits for a while, making sure people had access to welfare and food stamps and all the benefits they needed, and then transition into domestic violence work, where I helped people get restraining orders and family orders and divorces, custody orders, make plans to leave the homes, etc. And after a while, that was really wearing on my spirit. And so I worked with groups of dreamers that wanted to create charter schools in low-income neighborhoods in LA. And that was a pretty good fit. But at the root of it all, something that underlied all of the legal work I did was this fight, you know, two opposing sides trying to battle for something. And it made me really unhappy. I couldn't understand why we couldn't find a middle ground or why we weren't curious about the other person's experience. In the cases of violence, it's different, you know, but there were children at the core and I always felt like there could be things that we could do to support the kids better, but mm. sometimes they were not in the interest of the other parent, the abusive parent, and it, it broke my heart. I had a hard time. I had a very hard time. Yeah, the law wasn't for me. Yeah. What Do you know what initially attracted you to the law? Justice. Mm-hmm. Justice. I knew I wanted to do something to impact the human experience somehow. And it was either become a teacher, and I thought I didn't have the patience to do that, or become a politician, and I'm nowhere near diplomatic enough. It just, like, (laughs) flies out my mouth. That really should not. Like, well, I need a muscle sometimes. And uh, the law was the only other way. So that's what we did. Do you ever see, or do you you clock the the way that you learn to think in law school, in your practice now, and and in the work that you do now? I think that's one of the I mean, I have a lot of friends who are lawyers who regret going to law school, but they say, you know, law school really teaches you how to think. And that is where that was the most valuable thing that I learned. And also that I didn't want to be a lawyer (laughs) by the time I graduated. So I'm just curious. That's totally off topic. But do you see that crawling back in or does that show up in your day to day now? 100%. I echo your friends. I (laughs) did not want to be a lawyer by the time I was done with law school. And it taught me how to think. And I spent $250,000 on my brain. So I'm really grateful for that experience. There's a lot of different ways it shows up in my work with death, particularly with supporting people. Mm. I can, you know, we learn how to issue spot in law school. So you're given a set of facts and then you figure out what the holes are, what the issues are and what needs to be done. In the case of the law, a lot of times it's how to like exploit that hole or sometimes to find ways to plug it. And in the case of death work, when I walk into a home or when I hear a client's story, I can tell where the holes are, try to figure out what needs to be done in order to fill it, make things more complete. As they die, help them meet the need that perhaps they can't even see that they have. I mean, one of the things that I love most about people that come to this work is that it can use all parts of who you are, like it has to, you know, there's no part of yourself that you can throw away. And while it doesn't sound like a natural fit, a lawyer and a death doula, although some people think it makes a good fit because of wills and trust and like estate planning, but I find that shit so boring. Uh, That's not for me. But on the other hand, it's really useful that I can Mm -hmm. issue spot and critical think. Yeah. Yeah, The admin part of death is is really boring. <laughs> really, really boring. And so, so necessary. Yes. It's, it's like, it's a necessary, not evil, but just like, oh man, you have to, you have to like slog through so much. And I, I would actually, I'd be so interested to hear your perspective. I feel like it's, it can be a balm or a way for people to sort of keep grief at a distance 
when they're going through like the experience of a loved one dying because there's so much paperwork and admin stuff and sort of like checklists that you need to cross off. It can kind of be a, a coping mechanism in a way, but it can also be super overwhelming and traumatic. Absolutely. That's why I think it's so necessary that we have some outside support to do so. You know, people think of death doulas as people sitting bedside, handing tissues and giving hugs. And while that has something to do with it, we're also there in a supportive role. So if there are things that need doing, your death doula should be doing them. Or and if your death doula can't do them or is interested in doing them, the death doula should be helping you find somebody who can help you carry those out. The bureaucratic stuff causes a lot of grief, pun totally intended, at the end of life. Because there are things that are undone. Imagine this. Your favorite person in the world has just died. You are devastated. And then you have to sit on the phone with the DMV for six hours to try to figure out how to transfer title in their car. That's so rude. That's so rude. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's like rubbing salt in the wound, you know? Yeah. It's awful. I mean, yeah. I don't want to do that when I'm not grieving. Let alone <laughs> right. in the middle of deep grief. Like, come on. So we... we we can do something about that. We can help people make plans before they die. We can help them get things as tidy as possible. There's still going to be stuff to do. There's still plenty of stuff to do. Mm -hmm. But if we can make it a little bit tidier, make it a little less painful, then let's do that. Mm. Yeah. What do you and, like about the work? Is it uh, okay I'm asking you this question? Yeah, totally. I mean, you just turn the tables on me, intrigue on my style, <laughs> and I'm here Who's for it. Who? Listen, yeah. What do I like about it? I like, I like coming back to ritual and rites and like, how can we ritualize this experience? This like mundane experience because it happens to everyone and it's been happening since, you know, since the dawn of time, but it's also so it's supernova. It's like, it, it's so rare, you know, it, it's so precious and sacred and it's this, unique archetypal experience that we all are able to share. But I think what interests me the most about the work and why I'm studying with you at your school is relating myself to death and being close to just like, how can I prepare myself? Because my partner has brain cancer and that it's almost like unrealistic to, it feels to me unrealistic and irresponsible for me not to try and understand this and talk about it. Like it's the most important thing in the world, orienting towards like living your life as fully as possible. And when we're conscientious of death, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about this, I think it helps us do that and do that really well. And yet it's the thing that we pretend is never coming for us and is never coming for our friends and family, but it really is the only thing that we're promised. And that sort of like cognitive dissonance is really interesting to me. And just examining that fear and that shame and the grief, the sadness around it, the extreme feelings and emotions. I like you. I, I like the, the highs and the lows. And I'm no stoic, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't think that really answers your question. But what, what originally called you to this work? Because I feel like death doulaship has exploded in the last couple of years, but you've been at the forefront of this movement for a while. I've been working it. I've been working it. <laughs> and there are people, you know, that have been doing it also since the dawn of time who have been paving the way. And I think now the way that society works has maybe made it easier for us to do it in a professional capacity. What drew me to this work? I was practicing law mm -hmm. and terribly depressed 
and went on a medical leave of absence for clinical depression. Like it was bad. Mm -hmm. I knew that I couldn't carry on. I'd been faking the funk for a while, but it just got to the point where I was in like an agitator cycle in my soul and just like it couldn't keep going. And so I went on leave of absence. I found myself in Cuba and I'm trying to figure out which version of the story to tell you because it's (laughs) a rich one. I'll tell you the longer version. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Cuba on medical leave of absence. And I met a woman who wanted me to have a boyfriend because she thought that, like, she didn't understand why I was traveling alone. So she takes me out to this limestone cave where we partied all night, drank way too much drum. She brings a young man who was way too young. He looked like he was 17. I was like 34. I thought, I'm going to jail. (laughs) But it didn't happen anyway. So I didn't go to jail. I stayed out of prison. And we stumble out really late at night. I wake up in the morning and I had to catch a bus, but I realized I still had a scrunchie that she'd given me to put my hair up to make me pretty for this boyfriend. She's going to find me. So I wanted to return the scrunchie to her and take her photo. And I'm running through the street and a car almost hits me as I'm running. And I slam my hands on the hood and I was like, oh my God, girl, get it together. Like, don't die in these streets, right? Mm-hmm. I get to her, give her the scrunchie, get on a bicycle taxi with my things, get to the bus stop. And at the bus stop, I start chatting with a young woman who's in line, a fellow traveler, She tells me I'm in the wrong line to buy my ticket, and that's just the luggage line to get the luggage on the bus. So she offers to get my luggage on the bus for me while I wait in line to get my ticket. She's acting very strange. I don't understand why. She's like trying to get on the bus, carrying all of our stuff. She's got my backpack on the front and hers on the back and holding these bags. And I was like, what is this girl doing? I was so tickled by her. Got the last ticket. I get on the bus. We start chatting. She is in Cuba because she wants to see the top six places in the world that she wants to see before she dies because she has uterine cancer and has been treated for a while. So we chat about uterine cancer. I ask her a lot about disease. I ask her a lot about life and I start asking her about her death. And for one of the first times, she's having this very frank conversation about dying with somebody. Everybody else in her life, when she'd talk about death, would kind of shush her and say, oh, have hope and everything's fine or don't worry, you're going to be okay. And she was like, I might die. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to die eventually, but I might die from this. Yeah. And she was 36. And I felt really sad that nobody in her life had made space for it. I felt sad that society doesn't make space for it. I felt sad that her psychiatrist through her oncology program wasn't making space for it. And I was looking around and I thought, well, we're all going to die one day. Why are we not talking about this? Why is this the first time that I, somebody I went to a private liberal arts school, we're talking about all types of funky things. I spent a lot of time in church because I grew up an evangelical Christian. Why is this the first time I'm having a real meaningful conversation about life and death with a stranger on a bus in Cuba? So I looked out the window and I was like, all right, well, I guess it's just what we're going to do. It was very clear. It was not an aha moment. Yeah. It was just like, a, yeah, all right. And then we stayed on the bus. She started asking me about my life. She asked me about my death. We talked about my deathbed. I asked mm-hmm. her who she wanted to be on her deathbed. I realized that I was living totally out of alignment with who I actually was. Decided I wanted to make some changes, but I didn't know what they were. Mm-hmm. And we eventually, she was supposed to get off the bus after seven hours, but she stayed on the bus with me. Mm-hmm. And then she, yeah, we rode together for 14 hours, ended up on the other side of the island. We're going to bed later on that night. And after we've done lymphatic massage and, you know, other massage, because she has all this fluid built up in her body. She was sick, you know, traveling. We're still drinking rum, though, because (laughs) God bless my liver. And as we're going to bed, she says, I hope this doesn't weird you out. But do you remember that car that almost hit you in the city that we left? And I said, yeah. 
but I didn't know why she would know. And the reason she knew was because she was in that car that had almost hit me. So when I slammed my hands on the hood, she said I made eye contact with her. And she was like, who is she? And so when I showed up at the bus stop later, she was like, wait a minute. She has to get on this bus. I have goosebumps every single time. I have goosebumps too, full body goosebumps. Every single time I tell the story, I get goosebumps. Yeah. So that's how death works. Like literal crash course with this random woman, German traveler in Cuba named Jessica Wagner. Yeah. And then I came back to the States after that and I threw myself into finding a way into this work, but I couldn't find it. Yeah, so I waited and then kept traveling, met another German on a bus, a man who I fell in love with, traveled with him for a while, read all these death books, just tried to figure it out. And then my brother-in-law got sick. And then four months later, he was dying of Burkitt's lymphoma. Mm -hmm. And so I got to support him and my sister and my niece through the end of his life for two months. And I saw what the work could be I saw what the gap was in society. Mm-hmm. I realized, you know, before it had just been an idea and then all of a sudden it became very personal. And I saw a practical way that we could support people through this thing that we were experiencing. And so I created a practice. That's how Going With Grace got started. I thought that, you know, there were so many times if there was a professional who was compassionate and knowledgeable, knew what we were going through, understood it, had resources. I could just call sometimes and be like, hey, this is really hard, right? Or like, what do we do about the fact that I can't find his will, that he swears he made one? Somebody who could talk to me about that stuff, I would have paid them anything, Mm. anything, Mm -hmm. anything. Would have mortgaged my mama's house, like Mm. help. So yeah, I created a practice that looked like the support that we needed and founded a company and there we have it. That's a long answer to your question. No, that was so good. I loved it. I, I, oh my God, there's so much to say. Okay. When you said in the beginning of this conversation, you know, there have been people doing this work for thousands of years, you know, they didn't necessarily probably call themselves death doulas, but kin keepers who this is just part of their job or what they do, how they show up, how they can contribute to their community. I think it's so something that I kind of think about a lot is how we have commodified and commoditized a lot of the kin keeping. I think about like herbalism or folk magic or energy healing and how we have schools and certifications to help us sort of, I don't know, be responsible and know what we're doing and be well-researched. And also how that's a part of perhaps the system of capitalism that tells the outside world, like, this is worth doing, and I am worth listening to. And I'm curious for you, like, do you wrestle with that at all? Like having a certification program or having a school where you you teach this work? Because it it sounds like you are kind of self-study yourself. Yeah, I wrestle with it deeply. And I also took a program. It's called Mm -hmm. Sacred Crossings, located in LA. That course was great. It didn't look like the totality of what I wanted to offer. And Mm -hmm. so I started doing my work and learned it along the way through hospice and lawyers and accountants and hospice personnel, and then created a course that looks like the work that I do. I am largely self-study and I wrestle deeply with it, deeply with it. Part of the challenge that I see is that often we have people that are coming out of these schools that are, have not spent the time thinking about their personal relationship with death or their judgment, or their bias, or their anger, or their own grief, and are out there spitting it all over people that they say that they're supporting through death and dying. The course 
largely in a group study setting, really dives deep into that. We spend a lot of time. You're tagging me. I already yeah. told you I'm going to do the group I'm, I'm doing it publicly now, darling. Everybody gets to hear this. Okay. okay, okay. I'm accountable to everyone, all the thousands of people listening to this. <laughs> there, There's a container where we get to witness and be with one another in our deepest wounding mm-hmm. and our privilege and our bias and our grief and we get to witness and support one another through it in an effort to become as clear a vessel as possible to let the work flow in and through. Mm. And it provides a lot of information and resources. There is no way that I can tell anybody how to be a death doula. That's not what the course is intended to do. The course is intended to give you information, create a tool bag for you so that you can go out there into the world and let it channel and come through you. The biggest challenge that I have is with the professionalization of it because it does play directly into the capitalistic white supremacist system that says, I have a certificate that tells the world that I can do this. Validation from academia or whatever, Western civilization, like when you get checked off and approved, now you're legitimate. Yes, that gets my goat. That's not what I want to do. That's not what I want to do. What I want to do is empower people to trust themselves and their intuition and to clear as much space within themselves to go out and channel this work from other people, people that have come before and the people sitting right in front of them. Ideally, this would be work that we're passing around to the community. Yet, Mm -hmm. if you're built like me, I literally cannot do anything else with my life or my time. Somehow I got to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. I would do it for loaves of bread and bottles of wine, 100%. But that $250,000 that I talked about with the law school loans, they're still trying to get it. Never mind, I'm never paying it. But they're still trying to get it. So I've got to continue finding a way to do this out there. Community care, to me, is the highest expression of this work. Kin keeping, the highest expression of this work and what it actually looks like. And at the same time, there are skills that come along with this work. There's practical things that we do. There's research and time. I spend a lot of time practicing and preparing to offer this. And as we live in this capitalist system, I take the dollar bill as a contribution for my work. I also give it away plenty. I give it away all the time. There's yeah. real balance. People that have oh. means to pay, pay, and those that don't and still get it, you know? But I struggle with it. Yeah, and going with Grace, you guys support so many people, even with the content, the free content that you make. I feel like we overlook that a lot. When I talk to intuitive business owners, they're like, oh, I need to think about my impact. I need to give away, you know, of my revenue at the end of the year. And like, okay, you could totally do that. Great. If that feels supportive to you and you can still, and that, that that's generative to you and your practice. But, you know, if you're making a ton of free, really valuable stuff for people, that's impactful too. Like that can be more impactful sometimes creating community for people that can be more impactful than, I don't know, some funds. And sometimes Funding is what you need and and that's okay too. But in my experience of taking your program, you guys do an excellent job of saying there's there's no right way to do this <laughs> like there there's no right way to go through this and like this is a container for your experience and be open and you're going to know you are your best guide you're going to know teacher. what you need more of exactly Absolutely. and like you might need 2 years volunteering in a hospice yep. before you really feel prepared or maybe you'll never feel prepared and that's yep. okay. that's valuable too and i love that about 
your program. And as someone who's doing it self-study, who's going to do the group program now, (laughs) I really appreciate that because I think that studying all this work, you're confronting your grief and grief is with us. When first time I really experienced grief from a death, I was in my early twenties and and someone told me, once you have grief, once you experience grief, you don't go back to not grieving. You're grieving the rest of your life, just in different ways. Grief changes form and it's okay. It's not bad. There's nothing wrong with you. It's your constant companion and you get to know it and understand it. And it's surprising. And just like grief can kind of knock you out five years after something serious happens where you think you've gone through all the therapy and you're good. And then you're, I don't know, listening to a song on the radio and it brings up a a, a feeling, a person, and it just stuns you. I think that going through this practice of just kind of unwrapping what death, dying, and, and in turn living is, it brings up grief, like for people, but also just for a life unlived. And for the world, I mean, maybe I'm too sensitive, but I feel so much grief, especially in a time of like COVID. There's a lot. <laughs> There's so much. It's so, a lot. it really grabs you by the heart, you know, and it's almost like you got to move slowly through it sometimes and take, take your time with it. I agree. And I will say that it sounds like you're getting the gist and the core of the course anyway, even though you're a self-study student. <laughs> It sounds like you're still getting it. So maybe we'll just let you off the hook this one time. No, I want to have friends. I want to have friends who talk about death with me. <laughs> yeah, community is a huge part of the course and the work overall because, like, you know, like we've just been saying, you don't live in isolation. As much as I like to short myself off and just sit in the house and stare at the trees <laughs> alone, somebody built my house. Somebody's delivering my groceries since I'm not going to the grocery store. I know my neighbors. I have sisters. I have parents. I have friends. I have lovers. We live in community. We die in community. We grieve in community. This work happens in community. And so while, you know, there are people that come to me that maybe saw a business card or saw me on a talk or came to the website and pay me for my services, I'm also talking to my friends about like seven of my friends' dads died in the last year. So I'm working them through their grief. We're offering support while they figure out how to get the money from the bank account to pay for the cremation. Or, you know, my mom's friend's daughter died. And so I talked to her for a while. Like I'm also the community death person and will always be. Our greatest teachers are ourselves, but our greatest teachers are also the people at the feet of which we sit, meaning other people who've done this work mostly the dying person also. And then all the human beings, like, thank God we don't live alone. Thank God we get to be in community. And depending on what you believe, we we chose this, right? We chose this time and these people and these bodies to sort of come down into, maybe. Yeah. And every day I'm like, why? <laughs> <laughs> why did I pick the time of Facebook? Why? <laughs> Instagram, come on! <laughs> Brazilian butt lifts now? Come on. <laughs> oh man, we're so we're so funny in that way. You said you're the you're the community grief person. You now, that's your role. I've had a lot of people DM me when I said I was going through death drill training and also just, you know, being married to someone who has a very serious illness who have told me that they don't feel like they're allowed to understand death 
and grief because they've never had anyone close to them die. Almost like maybe it's like victim mentality or something, or like it's, it's to like to claim something that isn't yours yet, or to have some curiosity around it is there's something wrong with you or it's attention seeking. And I'm curious if, if people have been, or at, at that point in their life where they really haven't had anyone close to them die. I'm curious what you think about that. Do you see that a lot? I see it quite a bit. We have students come through the course that haven't had anybody close to them die. Huh. Yet they struggle with like imposter syndrome or something of this sort. We all know grief. Yep. We've been grieving really young. We might just not call it that. And sometimes we play grief Olympics where you only understand grief. Or you can only experience grief if it's like a death. And maybe it's only a death of somebody that was like really close to you. I grieved when Michael Jackson died. Okay. I never met the man in my life. I grieved hard. Oh. I, he was an instrumental part of my upbringing. And even though things happened in his life and he may have done things that were not great for other humans, I still grieved his death. We know grief. At that point, nobody close to me had died. My grandparents were all dead before I was born, except for one. She died when I was five. I never knew them. A kid in high school died when I was 17, but he was like, you know, a kid in high school. Like, nobody close to me had died. By the time this work dropped in my spirit, nobody close to me had died. Peter was the first one. Yet the curiosity about life's biggest mystery is as normal as being alive itself. Like it's just, it's a part of the way that it goes. So ain't no thing. Also, we break up, we lose jobs, we lose friends, we lose our baby teeth for God's sakes. We know loss, we know grief, we know grief. I grieved when I got my period and I wasn't (laughs) aware that that's what I was doing because I that like freedom of childhood was gone all of a sudden. I was keenly aware that something different had happened. We know grief. And so it. Uh, I believe that maybe it's something that people might use just to keep themselves small and to stay away from the work. But it's there. We all know how to do it. Mm, that's so true. We, we grieve the futures we, we won't have with someone. We're, you know, like we, when we go through a breakup, we grieve our past selves, like, yeah. and our innocence and our naivety, you know, like yeah. we, there's so much that, yeah, we, we kind of run away from. And we think that we have to well, I'm moving forward. So that's all good. And I shouldn't be sad about it. And it's weird for me to grieve it or to be nostalgic for that time. It indicates that there's something wrong with me. And really, it's just, it's just human. And I don't know, I think that like that grieving process makes us, it makes everything so much sweeter. Like I'm getting married, married officially in a couple of weeks. And something I talked about with my therapist, because yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And, you know, Ethan wasn't supposed to have, he wasn't supposed to live. And so this is a miracle that we get to have this amazing wedding in front of all of our friends and family. And part of me is like, yes, amazing, wonderful. I can't wait to celebrate. And this is going to be the beginning of the rest of our very long lives together. And another part of me is like, God, I, I hope this isn't the, the beautiful memory that we all have at a funeral in a couple of years. And trying to be with both those things at the same time, because both could be true. And honestly, both are true for all of us all the time. All the time. Death is always at, you know, it's it's at the door. We just don't always acknowledge that it's there. It could be you in a couple of years. (laughs) Exactly. It might not be Ethan. Exactly. Well, I always tell him if he, if he dies, I'm going to kill him. If he dies first, I'm going to kill him. So, you know, yeah, that's our pact. But I think that we think we can't have grief and be happy at the same time, you know, that those, these are like contradictory experiences, but I think it, I don't know, 
what I'm going through right now, I'm like, that it just makes it sweeter. It really does like make the joy even, even more potent and more intense. Yep. I would agree. It's like what we were talking about at the beginning, the highs and the lows, right? Like I can feel incredible sorrow. And I think because of that, I'm also able to feel incredible joy. Mm -hmm. And often I'm holding both at the same time. Mm -hmm. I'm holding both at the same time. I've been in a literal two-year breakup. Like we break up, get back together, break up, get back together. And just this morning on my bike ride, I was grieving that innocence of when we initially like got into this. I'm grieving the end of this because it's coming, even though right now everything's fine. We're back together again. But I'm, and I'm also wildly in love with him, mm. holding both all at the same time. I think what you said about your wedding is super poignant. I hope that you both get to enjoy the gifts of marriage for as long as they are serving you. I would also just very publicly like to say I love the shit out of Ethan. I think he's a spectacular human being. And I'm really so excited that he's found you also a spectacular human being, like, man, I couldn't be happier about it. And the last thought that I had was that there's also grief involved in getting married to yeah. leave the single life, even though dating could be a phenomenal pain in the ass and like marriage is supposed to be a joyous occasion. It's also the end of something and there's grief involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All of it. I love being a single girl. I love being Michelle Pelazon, you know, and that's not going to change keeping, okay. keeping my name too, but yeah, it's, both sides of the coin. And that sounds very trite because I think that's what we say constantly about life, right? It's all the things. It's not just the high highs and the, you know, positivity. It's it's everything. We need both sides. We need the duality, but it's true. You know, it's trite because it's, because it's true. Because it's true. Because it's true. And it applies to everything. It really does. Feel free to pass, but what's your grief? process like for heartbreak for a breakup how do you give yourself space to grieve I feel like I don't have a choice by virtue of who I am like if the grief is there it's coming it's going to push its way through everything else most recently when we broke up I spent seven hours in a hammock on a Sunday in the desert crying and letting like the tears evaporate and eating a lot of salty crunchy things and (laughs) potato chips are my favorite and I drink wine and I talk to friends and I, I cry. I cry a lot. I write a lot when I'm grieving, when I'm mm-hmm. heartbroken. But I also have learned how to grieve. I say like a champ because I do it so much. You know, mm-hmm. I grieve in my work a lot. But I also fall in love a lot and I break up a lot. <laughs> yeah, so I'm grieving all the time. I'm like grieving and falling in love every day. <laughs> yeah. I'm totally honest. Yeah. Have you read the the book the brain that changes itself sounds like i need to it's great something that struck me about that book was that your brain does change itself and is almost the the most plastic when you're falling in love which is really cool so you can completely like the things that you don't like about yourself or the things you want to change about yourself or your limiting beliefs you can obliterate while you're falling in love and i think that there's probably something deeper there that we could double click on that I, i need to marinate on around grief too right like when you fall out of love with someone or when you're still in love with someone, but you break up, how that really does, that probably changes your brain too. Yeah. I feel very firmly that I'm also very pliable when I'm grieving Yeah, because yeah, I'm cracked open in a way. And from that crack means, I mean, to me, it's like a fertile soil that anything can grow. It's a garden and the seeds that I plant come to fruition later, but I can be whoever I want. With a lot of grief comes a change in identity. 
mm-hmm. a shift in identity of some sort. Am I still this if that? Am I still his lover if we're broken up? You know, well, if not, then what? I can be anything I want, anything I want. It's like all yeah. the, the great unknown opens up and then you remember the like, oh, what I know is so, so, so small. I can be, there's so much left for me to explore and discover. Yeah. In fact, I know nothing. <laughs> I know yeah. nothing, nothing. And that's the okay. older I get, the more I learn, the more I learn that I don't know shit. Yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alua, this is so wonderful. How can people find you and, and how can they learn more about what your work and end of life work and death doula training and all the things that you're building and creating on the internet very easily (laughs) going with grace.com on instagram but it's going underscore with underscore grace if you don't put underscores in there you're going to end up at a yellow lab who is in kentucky or something like that (laughs) so we need the underscores and otherwise you find me on my bike going on a bike ride uh, staring at some trees, dancing in the desert, <laughs> or in the corner of a party, talking about death with one person. <laughs> yeah, that's where you'll find me. <laughs> awesome. And you're a very fun Instagram follow. You are. Oh, thanks. Such a Even though it's and, about death. <laughs> yeah, no, that's why it's wonderful. You're always, like, it's so buoyant and alive. And I think that's really, like, such a great metaphor for you and your work. It's, it's wonderful. I love seeing you on my feed. So thank you for thank the work you. that you do. Thank you. Thank you for showing up to it. And thank you for the work that you do. This has been fun. All right. That's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope you go follow Lua. And if you're curious about death doula work, you should definitely double click on her school going with grace. It's wonderful. It's been a wonderful experience. And I so recommend it. Even if you're like me and you don't know if you're actually going to practice being a death doula, if you're infinitely curious about all things 12th house and the great unknown, I think it will it will do a lot for you. And of course, we have a new giveaway for everyone who rates, reviews, and subscribes to the podcast. When you send us a screenshot of your review, we will enter you to win our four-day energetic recalibration class. It is Awesome. Okay. This is one of those things that I was like, I feel called to make this thing. And it wasn't on the roadmap. And so I made it, I like, you know, guzzled a bunch of coffee and told Ethan that I just wasn't going to come to bed because I was like on one. And I made this course and I was like, I hope this is good. And then I went that I went to bed. I woke up, I gave it to Wallace and I was like, can you just like go through this? And she was like, yeah, it's really good. And I was like, you're lying to me. And then we published it and I don't think I've gotten so many responses in less than 24 hours about like things shifting and changing for people so fast, like people finding money or getting a bunch of followers or going viral overnight in a good way. And it's just been really cool to see. And it's a really easy course to go through. It like literally takes 10 minutes a day over four days. So it's the energetic recalibration. It's four days. It's perfect for this time of year because it'll get you set up for next year. And we're giving it away. If you rate, review, subscribe, and you're our lucky winner of the month. So make sure you get your review in by the end of October and we'll let you know who wins. (music) 